All right, thank you, worship team. Appreciate that. Appreciate them, don't you guys? There we go. All right, there we go. Yeah. Um, before we get going this morning, I want to just tell you briefly, next week, one of our missionaries, Daryl Whitmer, will be speaking uh, from this area. Um, Daryl and Mary have been missionaries for a long time uh, with us. They serve in uh, Monson, Maine. We go up there regularly to visit them, and they're going to come down and visit us. And so Daryl Whitmer will be here next week. In two weeks, we're beginning a new series. It's called Arriving, and here's the gist of that series, in case you're dealing with this or knowing someone who's going through this, this idea that there is a distance between where I am and kind of where I'd like to be, that there is always this feeling that kind of comes up now and then that says, oh, they've arrived in their marriage. Uh, they've arrived financially. Ooh, they've arrived spiritually. It seems like no matter what trouble comes, they seem to kind of get through it okay. They're like Teflon. Nothing bad sticks to them. I mean, like, I just wish I could arrive at that place where I'm not. And this series, Arriving, is really a study of the Old Testament word called shalom. It's this big picture concept that runs throughout the entire Bible of peace, fullness, and wholeness and what God has designed us to uh, be, all right? So Arriving, essentially an eight-part series that will lead us up until Christmas beginning in two weeks, all right? There you go. Now, this week you find us in the last part of a six-part series called Fear Less, not fearless, but fear less, all right? We covered that a few times, right? Knowing that you can't actually be fearless because it's not a good idea to have no fear because fear teaches us some helpful things like not to run stop signs or stick your hand on the stove. Okay, It's a good idea to have a little bit of fear, just a little bit. This series is about fear less than you have feared before in different situations. And so the subtitle for this, the context, is caught in the stare down, the idea being that in different situations in life, we get stuck between should I or shouldn't I, do I or don't I, you know, should I buy, should I sell, should I move, should I stay, should I date them, should I not date them, should I whatever, should I, should I, should I, and how do I handle different stages of my life and with the fear that comes. And so we've been looking at a man named Daniel in the Old Testament who has dealt with a variety of issues along the way. And in each case has kind of stepped into a moment which would cause a lot of us to fear and a lot of us anxiety and a lot of us worry and wonder whether there still is a God in the universe or not or if he's abandoned us. Last week we looked at an old Daniel, all right? The first couple of weeks we looked at a 15 and then 18-year-old, which is pretty significant, all right? We learn from teenagers, okay? And that's okay to acknowledge. Sometimes they're just wiser and smarter, just sometimes, again, not all the time, just sometimes, all right? And, and then we also, last week we learned from an 80-year-old Daniel who we looked at Basically, for almost 30 years of his life, there's some silent years between Daniel chapter 4 and 5. And in that, Daniel lost influence. He lost his position. His voice was gone. He was no longer a power player, though he used to be. And in fact, the people who were making decisions in the Babylonian kingdom at the time didn't even know who he was. He had to be reintroduced to people. They couldn't even recognize him face to face. And so we talked about the struggle of aging, right, and what comes with that and how to age well and kind of keeping your edge as you age. And we also realized this, that all of us age, right? In fact, you're older now than you were last week. It just so we're actually 
all in that boat, right? Not just whoever we think is old, but actually all of us are, need that message. All of us are aging. It's just the way it works. If you're not aging, then you're dead. So, you know, we age and how to keep your edge as you age. So Daniel kind of gave that to us last week. This week, we're in the last part of a series, um, and we're finishing it up. We're wrapping up this part of Daniel, and he's about 83 years old, so we're still going to learn something from a mature Daniel. Now, to kind of set this up, um, I want to go back in time with you for a minute. Many of you know that I grew up in the Caribbean, um, in Grenada and Barbados. And when I came back from Barbados, one of the things that we enjoyed doing um, was visiting a variety of people. And there's a family uh, that I remember to this day, um, we called them uh, Grandma and Grandpa Bird, and they lived in York County. Uh, Grandma and Grandpa Bird uh, were an incredible uh, couple. They were older. Yeah, I don't know what older means to you. To me as a kid, and I was probably 13 at the time, they were old. All right, they had gray hair, and to me that just, you know, that's old. And now that I'm moving in that direction, that's certainly not old, all right, so we'll give you that, but it was at that time. So Grandma and Grandpa Bird were great people. I remember as a kid um, coming back to the States and every, my senses were overwhelmed with everything. And it's so hard to imagine that unless you go to another culture for a little bit. But everything is bigger in America. Everything is um, brighter and uh, faster and you know, more choices and everything. And I remember going to Grandma and Grandpa Bird's house and we'd, we'd roll down uh, the road to their place and we'd take a left turn into their drive and then our stones would hit the little gravel drive that they have. And you know what that sounds like in a car, the little crunching of the gravel underneath the tires. And that was a new sound for me as a 13-year-old. We didn't really have that very much in Barbados. It was more like, you know, whenever we drive. So the little crunching of the gravel, and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, here's the bird's house. And we go up, and here's what I remember about the birds. They were always so happy to see us. They were always so happy to see us. And now as I look back, I'm thinking, why? Like, I probably destroyed your place. I was so excited to be there, and, and you always welcomed me with a smile and a hug and such enthusiasm, I'm telling you, such enthusiasm from Grandma Bird in particular. And Grandpa Bird was the kind of the older, oh, I'm going to make a joke and make everybody laugh. That was funny, wasn't it? You know, and just really a happy kind of funny guy like that. And people just, oh, it's, it's him again, him being him. And Grandma Bird was always so friendly and warm and excited to see us there. I remember the sensation of um, being in their home and going into a basement for almost the first time. Basements didn't exist in my world. They don't exist in Barbados. I'm like, what is a basement? So we went down to the basement, and there were dead animals looking at me, you know, on the wall. And it scared me, truthfully, and I had to sleep down there. And I, they were always looking at me as I was down there. It smelled funny, but I still enjoyed it. And there was a toy box there. And even though I was, you know, early teens, like the fact that there was a toy box and the way, what they had there was amazing and cool. And then I remember eating Lucky Charms for the first time and saving the marshmallow, like getting a marshmallow. I'm like, God, this is amazing. And every little sense that I had at the bird's home, I remember. They had a little in-ground pool, and then they had a screened-in little porch thing for eating lunch. And I thought, this is amazing. I'm, this is luxury. Like I, it's screened in. Like the bugs can't get in here because that didn't exist in Barbados. And they served us potato chips. I remember just eating, it was a regular bag of normal potato chips. Like, These are like crunchy and fresh. I mean, everything was so, uh, the senses were so engaged whenever we went to see the birds. And every time that I think about the birds from then till now, I think of such a positive example of people who are willing to open up their home to people like us. 
welcome missionaries back from the field and say, man, come to our place. We would want to have you. We love having you here. And they actually cared about us as a family. They cared about me as a little boy who would, you know, no doubt mess up their place with all the energy that, that I had. And I look back and I think of myself, I think, what does it take to create, you know, a, a legacy for yourself? You know, what does it take to create the kind of life where at the end of it, people will talk about your life and say, there's something about them that I want to be like. There's something about them that I'd like to emulate or model. There's something about them that reflected the goodness of God no matter what. And here's what I know now as an adult. The birds dealt with all kinds of junk that I never saw. They dealt with cancer in their family. They dealt with the death of their son through a... Uh, a he was a pilot, a missionary pilot. He died in the, the mountains uh, in, um, in and around uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, flying things uh, over their people and cargo. They dealt with all kinds of pain and struggle and difficulty and, and a real human level. But here's the legacy they left for me, was people who were joyful, people who were grateful, people who were generous, people who wanted to come see and have us there. And there was something about that that made me think, whatever they do, I kind of want to be like that. And here's, here's the thing that I want to lay out for us today, because today, today's deal is really the, the conversation about legacy. And a legacy is something that is so far out there from where we live now that it can be almost impossible to think about and even engage the conversation about legacy. Can you imagine starting that conversation with someone after church about legacy? What would you like your legacy to be like? You know, it would be kind of a joke, you know, because we don't even know how to get from here to there. It's just so far away, it seems like we'd want to have someone talk about us, like, we talk, like I might talk about the birds, but I don't know how to get there. And so in the meantime, whatever. I mean, I'll try to make some good decisions, but whatever. It's so far removed. And, and here's another reality, and I'm going through so much pain right now, and I'm going through so much struggle right now, and you don't know how deep it is for me right now, okay? To think about legacy, are you kidding me? I have so many other things to deal with. How in the world am I going to think about legacy? Get back to me when things settle down. Get back to me when things are under control. But right now, are you kidding me? I can't, I can't think about that. And this morning, I want us to think about this in a very practical way. In fact, it's going to seem almost boring if you let it, because the principle is so simple that it's like, oh, you had to go to school to learn that? <laughs> like, really? So here's, here's the reality, and here's what a guy who is pretty smart had to say about, about um, the power of compound decisions over time. Because legacy issues are this. Legacy, as we talk about legacy, is a matter of how people talk about your lifetime. And how people talk about your lifetime, here's what you know about your lifetime already, that your lifetime is made up of days, right? And so how people talk about your days, and in truth then, what you decide to do with your day becomes your legacy, right? So if your lifetime is made up of days, what you decide to do with today becomes your legacy. And Aristotle, a smart guy, used to say this, we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. And so in the course of our life, in the course of your life and my life, we become the day-to-day growth of what we gradually do. And it's just not a whole lot more exciting than that. That the difficulty with the Christian life, someone once said, is that it's just so daily. It's the constant daily struggle of, man, this did not go well. I'm fighting against this. 
this person is really hurting me here, I'm not getting it here, and that's not going well, and there's conflict here, and there's struggle there, and it's the dailiness of it and how I respond every day that builds your week, and it builds your month, and it builds your year, and it builds the season, and ultimately it builds your lifetime, and it builds your legacy. And it's the little decisions that make this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, throughout your week, and how you respond in different situations. And we know it's true in our minds that will ultimately determine your legacy. We are what we repeatedly do. And Daniel, I'd like to suggest to you, Daniel has a legacy. He has a reputation that is something that didn't just come because he made one or two decisions along the way, but it's something that came because he repeatedly did some things in his life. And he became what he repeatedly did. And so I'd like to look at that with you in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, well, go ahead and turn there if you do, or if you want to turn in your tablet or your phone or whatever you have to, to get to Daniel. There's a Bible around you in the pew near you. That is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we want to give that to you this morning. Uh, You can find the little book of Daniel perhaps the easiest by looking in the table of contents at the beginning of the Bible. That'll tell you where the the books are. Uh, It's in what we call the Old Testament. That's the first part of your Bible. Um, You'll you'll find the Psalms and kind of keep going a little bit uh, further to your right, and you'll find the little book of Daniel. I just want to set up the historical context briefly for you. There's some things that happen here in the book of Daniel that are just a little important to know. Um... Daniel used to be a a Jew in Jerusalem. He's still a Jew, but he was taken from Jerusalem and brought out of Jerusalem about almost 70 years ago, 65 years ago. Um, And he was brought into captivity in Babylon. And the bulk of Daniel 1 to 5 is really all about him being in Babylon and growing into someone who is trusted as an advisor. Uh, If you were here last week, you knew that there was a a shift in power. World powers shifted from Babylon to what we call call the Persian Empire. And here's the significance of that is that in the Persian Empire, they became like the biggest superpower then of the day. They, they overcame and they took not only what the area of Babylon, the world that Babylon had, they also took over uh, what we now know as modern-day Turkey. They took over Egypt. They took over parts of northern India, uh, excuse me, of India and northern Africa, as well as all of the territory that Babylon uh, So we're talking about a world power that had a ton of geographic territory. Now, here's what that means for us. There was a king whose name was Cyrus, and Cyrus was the king of all Persia, of all of this stuff. And what he would do is he would um, basically put people in charge of segments or sectors of, that, uh, of his kingdom. One of the people that he put in charge um, was a king named Gurabu. Isn't that kind of weird? Gurabu. All right, I think that's kind of weird. All right, no reaction from the audience at all. All right, Gurabu. And, and Gurabu will actually go by the name of Darius because Darius in Daniel chapter 6, we will see, Daniel chapter 6 introduces Darius, but Daniel 5 also had a Darius in it. But Daniel 5 and Daniel 6, Darius are different people because Darius is a title, not a person. The title of Darius means uh, holder of the scepter, yeah, the one who is in charge. He is... Darius Garabu, okay, the guy who's in charge. So this guy, Garabu, is a new Darius who comes in from Daniel chapter 6. The old Darius in chapter 5 who blew up Babylon, he's dead. New Darius comes in. This new Darius, Garabu, has a gift in administration. Uh, He's, historically speaking, archaeologists 
have uncovered the records in this time period, and he is listed as an incredible administrator. And he sets up 120 people to oversee all of this land that he now has, and you have to. And then you have to trust people to essentially run point on all of the projects and all the stuff that's going on to bring taxes in, keep everybody happy, at least happy enough, and kill people who aren't happy, all right? And do all that kind of stuff. That's just kind of what you have to do. And so Daniel becomes one of those people that um, Darius decides, I'm going to put in charge of a part of this land. And he becomes one of the most trusted advisors. The interesting thing is that Persians, compared to Babylonians, Persians were more, um, let's say, hospitable to Jews than Babylonians were. They cared more about Jews for some reason than Babylonians did. So they had a little more affinity, a little more care and interest in, the, in Jews. And so it was a little easier for King Darius uh, Garabu to trust uh, trust in Daniel. And so we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 6, reading from verse 1. And we're going to read a little bit of this story, and I'll, I'll comment along the way. But that's a little bit of the background and the setup to what's happening. So in verse 1 of Daniel 6, we see this. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, uh, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him. And then here's the legacy statement about Daniel. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, simple statement, kind of in the middle of a fairly obscure passage. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. In the middle of all of the political powers that are going on, in the middle of all the scheming and the moving that happens within the political realm to try to get your way and manipulate and you know, play politics and all that, Daniel was trustworthy. Can you imagine that? Someone who in the political realm, you can just say, I know I can trust him. He's not going to tell me yes and someone else no. He's not going to cut me off you know, uh, to somebody else. This is a man who I can totally trust. He is not corrupt. He is not negligent. This is a guy I can fully trust. And in the political world, in the, the world of making decisions, this is a life and death issue. If I can't trust you, you might turn around and try to kill me. This is a man who I can trust. And this becomes Daniel's legacy. At 83 years old, it's very interesting that he made it through all the rulers, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, now into the second all right, of King Darius. Uh, he made it through all of that because he was trustworthy and not corrupt or negligent. It may seem like a simple statement, and we might think to ourselves, sure, we're trustworthy. <laughs> we're trustworthy. But something gets put to the test for Daniel now, and it becomes that, that uh, story of, uh, that we tell the children all the time. In fact, one of the most popular stories told in the Bible, and it's a story when you think of Daniel, it's exactly what you think of. We, we finally have gotten there to really what the, even the background image of this series is about. It's Daniel and the lion's den. And this story becomes a story that we often will hear and tell the children. Even if you're not a church person, you know kind of what the story is. That there was a man named Daniel, and at some point along the line, you know, he was, a stone was rolled back, and this guy was thrown in with some lions, and it was, a stone was rolled back, and, and then the next morning he was there and alive and safe, and everybody celebrated and all that. We don't always tell the second part, that the people who put him in there, the people who tried to manipulate the king, they were thrown into the lion's den with their wives, 
and their children were also thrown in there. That's just what the Bible says. We don't like to tell that part, but it happened. And so we hear the Daniel and the lion's den story, and we just think, yeah, that's kind of a neat little story. Hoorah for God for coming through for that. So here's a question about the legacy. Here's a man who's trustworthy. And so the, the, um, the edict gets put out, the law that gets put out is um, to these people who are now bitter and jealous, these rulers, these satraps are jealous. And they say in verse 5, they say, finally, we're never going to find, okay, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. You know, like when people lie, because Daniel didn't agree. Have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so it can't be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so King Darius put the decree in writing, which seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, why not? So here's the problem. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, if you're a, a person who likes to write in your Bible or highlight notes or post things on Facebook in the middle of messages, whatever you like to do with that, okay, that doesn't totally bother me just a little bit. I'm just kidding. It really doesn't bother me, mostly. All right. Um, here's something that I highlight. Here's something that I underline. Is the simplicity of this statement in verse 10. Verse 4 is the big legacy thing. Okay, this guy's trustworthy, not corrupt, not negligent. But verse 10 is the how does that happen. Verse 4 is the result of it. And verse 10 is the power of how in the world that happens in the first place. And what I underline in my Bible and what I highlight is the last words of verse 10, just as he had done before, just as he had done before. That this is the moment, I mean, seriously, think about this, that you are put, if you're put in a position where you are told the decree has been issued, and if you continue to pray, if you continue to come here Sunday mornings to worship, if you continue to own or read your Bible, if you continue to do anything that in public at all will be able to identify you with a God of the Bible, you will be killed. I mean, there's no, there's no Daniel in the lion's den story yet, okay? There's no other, like, you know, Joseph in the lion's den or Barry in the lion's den or, you know, Jimmy in the lion's den. There's no one else who survived the lion's den before. And so this is, we know, a death sentence already. And Daniel gets the word, gets the news, you can't pray, you can't be associated, you can't, in the middle of pain, you can't cry out to God publicly or you're going to die. And so Daniel's response is to go to his default behavior. He's to go to the thing that he has always done before. And he goes to his room, as he had done three times a day, and prayed toward Jerusalem. It's just like you are in training if you, let's say you drive truck or something like that and you, you know on a cold day and there's a little bit of ice patches on the road, if you feel the, the fish tail of the truck, you just, without even thinking, you'll respond to how to keep that, that baby from locking up and sliding and jackknifing and ruining everybody's life because you have an intuitive response in the middle of stress that you're like, this is what I'll do to try to keep this under control. 
And Daniel's just as he had done before moment was, if you pray, you're going to die. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do what I have done before. And it's just not glamorous. I mean, it's it just not, honestly, it's also not hard. It's not also out of reach for any of us. We think of Daniel, we think, I'm never going to be a ruler of a kingdom. I'm never going to be a guy who's, or a gal who's looked at to be, you know, in charge of, of a country, you know, and to be trusted with all that. So I can't be like, like Daniel. And what Daniel does in his private life is within reach of you and me, even in the middle of the greatest stress that you feel. Because he had built something into his days that was just as he had always done, just as he had done before. The psalmist David writes in Psalm 55, 16 and 17, that evening, morning and noon, I will get up, I will pray. That there is this Jewish background and tradition to praying three times a day toward Jerusalem, and this is what Daniel did, and he made this a part of his life. And here's what I think is happening. The reason Daniel is trustworthy, the reason Daniel is not corrupt, the reason that in the heat of the moment he can be trusted is not because in the heat of the moment he makes a good decision, but it's in the quiet moments leading up to the heat of the moment that he has built this rock-solid foundation that he is always doing the same things. He's developing a habit of making the choices every day and three times a day to say, this is what I do. This is who I am. And in the middle of the hardest times, when you're most tempted, when you are struggling the greatest, when you're facing the greatest fears, the struggle is going to be in your mind, what do I do? Where do I turn? And Daniel's default reaction was to do just as I had always done before. Now, his response puts the king in a bit of a bind. The story will go on to say that King Darius, King Darius uh, Gubaro, excuse me, is his name, uh, is greatly distressed. Verse 11 will say that. Um, excuse me, they go to the king. Verse 14 says that. The king heard this and he was greatly distressed. So these guys who are trying to get Daniel set up in trap, uh, they go to the king and say, listen, didn't you sign this decree? And he's like, yeah, I did. They should certainly die. And then they say, well, Daniel was one of those guys who prayed. At this he's greatly distressed. And here's why I think that is. Because have you ever done something that you hope your boss doesn't find out you did, but you think is an okay decision? Do you ever make a decision for people who kind of are below you, and you think, I'm sure the boss would be fine with this, as long as it doesn't backfire? And then if it backfires, like, ah, I'm going to have to like, talk to the boss about this. I'm going to kind of have to own up that I, that I did this. I mean, this is, where, this is where Darius is, because Cyrus is uh, amenable. He's friendly to the Jews, and he's, he's for the Jews in general. And now, one of the very first things that, that Darius is going to have to do is kill one of the Jewish leaders. <laughs> but he forgot to ask the boss if he could do that. He didn't really get approval for this decree. He just made the decree. And so there's this tension within him of what do I do? And he tried to figure out a way not to throw Daniel in the lion's den and it didn't work out. And as we know the story, Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. King Darius then doesn't take any entertainment that night, doesn't take any, any fun or anything. And as soon as he can the next morning, you know, he gets up and he goes to the, the lion's den, uh, the stone, the entryway, and that gets rolled away. And he asks, you know, Daniel, are you, are you still there? Has your God saved you? And Daniel says, no. Okay, that was really slow. Now, so, so Daniel, yeah, he responds, all right? 
And he's like, yeah, you know, my God has saved me. The God, and, and, and Darius even says, you know, the God whom you constantly worship, has he saved you? You know, the God who you continually worship, has he come through for you? And he said, yes, he has. And so he pulls him out. And, and then the text just records the ugly reality that the, not only are the men who manipulate this plan thrown in, but their wives are thrown in too, okay, and their children are thrown in, and it's just an ugly reality. Uh, we'll say this, not everything recorded in the Bible is prescriptive, okay, meaning you shouldn't do everything that you read about in the Bible. It just records history sometimes, and this is just history. This is Persian, Medo-Persian history. This is what they did. It doesn't endorse it. It doesn't say, oh, this was such a good plan. It just records this is what happened, okay? So they're recording it, and here's what happened. And then at the end of it, Darius says, you know what, to everybody in all the land, and this is now sounding very familiar in the story of Daniel, we should all worship this God. Like, you think you'd learn a lesson by now, right? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar did that, you know, Belshazzar did that, now Darius, we should all worship this God. And he makes this big decree that everybody in the land should worship the God of Daniel. And we should all do that. Good idea, right? So now as we think about this, we think, wouldn't it be nice? I want to take you to a spot in the story that maybe you haven't been to before because there's some history that... that um, comes together here in a very profound way. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have a window into what exactly Daniel prayed when he went to pray? Wouldn't it be kind of neat if we had like a GoPro that followed him around um, and, you know, went with him, kind of hovered over his head and went with him into the, the little chambers where he prayed and, and listened to his prayer? We, we had a Twitter account that we could go back to or a Facebook account and say, man, this is what he prayed. You know, in the moment of greatest heat, what did Daniel pray? It'd be kind of neat to see, you know, what that would be like. So here's what we know historically, because this is really helps us understand some things. What we know historically is that there was a guy named Jeremiah, who was a prophet, and his time overlapped Daniel's. Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. They lived around the same time. And Jeremiah writes a letter, and this letter that Jeremiah writes gets taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's what it says in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Here's what we see, that this is the letter the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so there's a letter that was written. Jeremiah the prophet wrote this letter. It went from Jerusalem all the way over to Babylon for people who were there to figure out how to live. For people who were there to figure out how do I worship God in the middle of the exile, as we call it. What do I do when I'm in the greatest moment of suffering? What do I do when I think that God has abandoned me? What do I do when I feel like my prayers aren't being answered? What do I do when things around me are being destroyed that used to be my safe haven? You know, what do I do then? And that's what Jeremiah is dealing with. Now, we know that Daniel had access to this because he wrote about it later in Daniel chapter 9. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel himself is kind of giving us a clue here in this book of Daniel that he had access to the very thing that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles. And he would read that. So Daniel, in the exile, would read what he should be reading, what Jeremiah wrote for how you handle this. How do you pray in the middle of exile? How do you pray in the middle of very, very difficult times? What does it look like to do that? What should you pray for? And what should the people of God do in a city, in a community, in a place where their values don't necessarily reflect the values of the broader culture in which they are? What should we do then? And so here's what Jeremiah wrote, because it would be very interesting to see what is it that Jeremiah writes? What is it that God wants the people of God to do in a place that is not their own, 
in a world that is not their own, in a culture that is not their own. And here's what Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. We read this, that this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And then he goes on to make this statement in verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Isn't that interesting? In other words, Jeremiah is not saying, what I want you to do is to boycott all the businesses that have ethical structures that don't line up with the Bible, all right? Make sure you do that. Here's what I want you to avoid. Here's where I want you to stand in judgment of people who think differently than you do. Here's where I want you to stand apart as the people of God in the community in which you are. Jeremiah's writing of God's command to the exiled people in Jerusalem was to pray. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've called you. Settle down there. Marry. Grow food. Eat it. Build houses. Fully interact with the economy, with the social structure, with the culture of the day. Get involved in that community. And pray for it. Because, and here's this, such a powerful principle, because as it prospers, so too will you prosper. Not avoid, not judge, not condemn, not point fingers at, not say where they're wrong and where they're different. Pray for it. Seek the prosperity of it. And so what does Daniel pray when he goes into his room? When he hears that if I continue to pray, I'm going to die. What does he pray? And he references this exact letter that Jeremiah writes to the people who are in exile. Now, I wasn't there. I, don't, I can't tell you the words that Daniel prayed. I don't know how much of this he prayed exactly, how much he didn't, but this is the exact letter that he referenced in Daniel chapter 9. This is what he had access to. This is what was on his mind. It's a very interesting perspective. It's a very thoughtful perspective because here's what we learned from this. That as people of God, called into and put into a community that we don't fully agree with, that show values that we don't fully embrace as a people of God, that make decisions that are, we would call unbiblical decisions, that we might even call ungodly decisions. We might call immoral. That our position, the position that God is telling the people in exile to go into, is the position of seeking the prosperity of the people around them nonetheless. Not a position of judgment and condemnation, but a position of saying, seek the good and the peace and the prosperity of the people around you. And here's what's so important for us, is we think about how in the world do we function church-wise, community of faith-wise, within the place that God has called us and led us right here, even in paradise. This is why we talk about here at GPC, that our mission is developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We, we, we push into that, we speak about that, we lead in with that, we keep asking the questions, are we doing that well, and how do we do that? But our strategy is we talk about how do we do that, 
we talk about that our interest is in, in relentlessly pursuing the social, spiritual, and cultural good. Relentlessly pursuing the social, spiritual, and cultural good. That we want to be people, as people of God, who pursue the social, spiritual, and cultural good. Not just dropping tracks on people, not just saying Jesus loves you, but helping to work in the social needs of our community, in the spiritual needs within our community, in the cultural needs within our community. That it's this very principle, it's this very letter that was written that has shaped the strategy of how we talk about what we do, both within the Together initiative and within the community of faith that we have here at Grace Point Church. That we are interested in the same things that Jeremiah was writing about to a, to a group of people who are exiled from their home to seek the prosperity of the place that you find yourself. To essentially look out for the good of those around you, regardless of what they believe. To seek the good of those around you, regardless of what they believe. Not to be in a position of judgment over people around you, regardless of what they believe. And here's what that does for you. Here's what it does for me. It puts my pain, it puts my struggle in perspective, doesn't it? When I live in an unselfish way daily like that, when I pray in a regular way for the good of those around me, when I seek the benefit of those around me who are very different than me, it puts me in a position where I say, you know what, my struggles, my, my trials, they might be legitimate, but you know what, there's so many people who need more. There's other people who need help and need a hand. And as they prosper, we prosper. That God has put, in my view, and I think in Jeremiah's view, that God has put the community of faith in places, in communities, to lead others to see what fullness actually looks like, what wholeness actually looks like, and to pray for that on a regular basis, and to seek that on a regular basis, on a just-as-they-have-always-done basis, so that the legacy is just as they have always done, they've always been for the good of the people around them, individually and corporately. And I can't tell you exactly what Daniel prayed when he went to his room, but I can tell you that he had access to this. He referenced it. He spoke of this, that there is a, an interest here, a pursuit in seeking the good of the people around him, kind of no matter what. So let me push into this this way. The stare down. As we stare down a struggle that will come, and it's simple as this, the stare down in this message is simply the stare down of the day, the struggle of the day, because here's the temptation we have to wait till tomorrow to do what we know we need to do today, to struggle to get off the ground with initiatives that we know we need to do, to, to wait until there's a better time to have the conversation, to wait until there's a better time to move in that direction. You guys have all seen the shuttle take off from wherever, you know, from Earth to the moon, all right? So you already know that the, the shuttle, it takes more energy for the shuttle to get out of our orbit than it does for the millions of miles to go to the moon. Because once it's out of the gravitational pull, you know, it's off. That's the way it is with starting new habits. It's the gravitational pull downward. Of, I should start, but it's too hard. I should start, but yeah, I'm too tired. I should start, but my kids are so busy. I should start, but my wife is, but my husband is, and I don't have enough money, and who has the time? And, and it's the getting off the ground. It's the getting through that gravitational pull back to what you're used to. It's the staring down of your day and saying, okay, today, if a lifetime is made up of days, as a people of God, I'm to pray for the good of the people around me, that that is to be something that I do as I regularly do. How is it that I can move in that direction? Staring down the day is a struggle. Secondly, I'll say this, and it's a question. What will be your just as he had done before legacy? 
What is it that when, when you're done living on this earth, that people will look at you and look at me and say, you know what, here's what they always used to do. They always used to do, do, do. This is what they always did. In times of struggle, in times of trial, here's what they did. They always did this. Daniel's was this prayer three times a day, moving to Jerusalem, praying three times a day. Just what he did, always as he had done before. A guy by the name of Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of, Fi- of Highly Effective People. Many of you I know have read that book. And in there, uh, the last habit he talks about is this concept of sharpen the saw. And he tells a story of a guy who was uh, cutting down a tree with a saw. It's a fable. Um, and his friend comes by and he says, uh, man, what are you doing? He says, I'm cutting down the tree. Well, how long have you been doing this? He says, for five hours. <laughs> five hours? Well, don't you think you should sharpen your saw? He's like, no, I'm too busy. I'm cutting down the tree. And so here's the point, right? That in the middle of all the busy things that we do, in the middle of all the stuff that we do that just kind of makes up our life, we think, I can't, who has time to stop what I'm doing? Who has time to sharpen the saw? And yet we all know it would be wise to stop and sharpen the saw and then come back at it and you will have a much easier time at it. As we think about our days, and you and I both know, you don't need me to tell you, here's something to add to your day. Here's a new thing here, just take five more minutes, ten more minutes, whatever, it's not a big deal. You and I both know we'll push back against that because we already feel overwhelmed, we already feel busy, we just feel overcome with life sometimes. But what if, to step back and say, okay, what do I need to sharpen in my habits? What do I need to change in my daily habits will sharpen the saw for me? And here's the challenge I want to offer to you. Um, you, those of you in construction, you've heard about, you know, uh, we, we talk about, um, you know, two by fours, four by sixes. I'm going to give you a three by seven. I know it's off, but it's a three by seven challenge, all right? So the three by seven challenge is this. The Jeremiah 29 seven prayer at mealtimes this week. I just put this challenge out there for you. What if you were to pray this week? When you eat breakfast, and if you don't eat breakfast, here's a good chance, okay, even a coffee or when normal breakfast time is for people, okay? You know, what if for one week, three times a day for seven days, you decided, I'm going to add a prayer to my day for three times a day for seven days. And my prayer is going to be in the spirit of this Jeremiah 29, 47 passage, and it's simply this. God, I want to be for the good of the people around me. Help me to see and meet their needs. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, mean, what if, what if, what if we just added that in the middle of what you're doing and begin to develop a just as he, just as she had done before moment, that we are for the good of the people around us and interested in how God will intersect with that, and that will keep growing. So three by seven challenge to do that. Guys, in this series... um, We've wanted to give you something to, to hold on to in whatever stage of life you're in, to fear just a little bit less. As you step into conversations that are tough, as you step into aging, as you step into the day to day to day to day life that we have. We've looked at a man who's, we've learned who's, who's from 15 years old to, to 18 now until he's 80, 83 years old. Um, incredible life of Daniel. 
And my hope for you is that you, as you are going to face things that, that are going to make you push back on your faith in God, that are going to make you push into, should I even care about this anymore? And people don't care, and nobody cares, and things are so hard, and I just wish they could be different, and you're pushed against the things that you kind of know you should do. I just want you to think about Daniel. I want you to think about a man who faced similar stuff and chose in those moments of should I date, should I not date, should I move, should I stay, should I give, should I hold back, should I get a new job, should I not, should I tell, should I not, should I start the conversation, should I not, how do I, I don't know, in those greatest moments of pushback and fear that you have when you're staring down something big in your life, I want you to remember Daniel. And I just want you to remember to fear a little bit less and trust a little bit more in the God of the universe who knows everything and gives you the resources to do what needs to be done. Your legacy and my legacy, we know it, are made day by day by day by day and moment by moment by moment. We are what we continually do. And I pray that we would be encouraged to continually step into the fears that we have. I love you guys. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance this morning to be in your word again and to see the example of Daniel, who just as he had done before, when faced with the threat of death and all that he knew would be a sure death sentence, that he went and he did just as he had done before. Didn't even really think about it. Just did it that he had created such a habit and such a pattern that it developed in him a legacy, not just about him and how great he was, but about why in the world a man of his reputation would see the need to worship a God of your reputation, oh God. And so I thank you that we have men like Daniel to look at, that we have people who have made the decisions that day by day by day the non-glorious, non-exciting, just mundane, tough, life-building, character-building decisions have made those decisions to say, I'm going to now, just as I've always done before. I'm going to pray. I'm going to trust. I'm going to seek the peace and the prosperity of the people around me because this is what our God wants. Give us the courage to do what we know we need to do and to do it with courage, grace, and love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.